Welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Harry Crane, a professor of statistics. Harry, thank you very much for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today I'm joined by Harry Crane, a professor of statistics. Harry, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jake. Good to be here. So I I was purposely short. There are are many things in life. Uh, Obviously, professor of statistics is one and irrelevant for what we're going to talk about today. And uh, before we get too deep in in titles and academia and things like that, I wanted to just hear in your own words how, how you would describe yourself. Because often people are led in a certain direction when they hear people with uh, you know titles like professor and things like that but from your point of view what or how exactly would you describe yourself and what you're interested in yeah I mean so well we'll probably try to keep it as far away from academia as possible uh, today but you know we'll you know you'll see how I try to think about these things but I think the easiest way to describe myself um, would be that I'm just generally obsessed with probability and anything having to do with uh, with probability. And so obviously that, that involves gambling, but it's really not just about gambling, but everything or anything related to uncertainty, making decisions under uncertainty, living with uncertainty, living with risk and kind of how, you know, how I or how anyone else conducts our, how, how, to, how we conduct ourselves in those situations. So certainly part of this involves you know, the math of probability or statistics that you'd come across in school, and certainly parts of that are relevant. Um, but what interests me and what motivates me in that, uh, in this topic, you know, that's really a small part. That's aside from that technical part, there's also uh, a big logical and intuitive component to it that I'm interested in. There's also a lot of emotional aspects of risk and uncertainty that come into play. Uh, there's also, also ethical aspects to it and and gambling and risk-taking certainly touches on all these factors which explains you know explains my initial interest in in this topic since ever since I was a little kid but that still carries on to today both in my research in probability and statistics and also in my involvement in some gambling related projects and ventures that I do on my own and with some of the other teams out there. So uh, oftentimes those coming from an academic background will focus heavily on the technical side of things, which is often critical. But hearing you speak, you know, outside of, you know, today and this, but more broadly, as well as reading some of the work you've done, I would imagine you seem very focused on the on the common sense part of, you know, living in this universe and and all the uncertainty and unknowns that do exist, as well as the technical part. But it seems like if I had to pick a side that you were more heavily focused toward it, it might be that. Is that the wrong assessment or is is that how you would view yourself? Because it's it's a refreshing way to look at things just given, you know, we obviously all live in this world and understand it's not as simple as a as a research paper. Yeah, well, I think that's a fair uh, a fair assessment. Um, yeah, I, I guess the way, the way that I think about it, you know, it's kind of like a, 
for me at this point, it's become almost like a, a philosophy of life uh, in that you not only how I live, but how I kind of interpret the world or kind of interpret other people's actions. You can, I think you learn a lot about somebody, you learn a lot about yourself by how you can, how you, how you conduct yourselves in situ, in situations when you're not sure what's going to happen or what, when something's on the line. Um, you know, a simple example of this would be, you know, if you lose a bet, do you pay, do you pay the bet off? Uh, but you know, there's many, many other, uh, more nuanced situation. So, you know, I, the technical part is important and the technical part is interesting to a point, but um, I think that there, there comes, there comes a point also in a lot of, especially in a lot of gambling situations where the technical, the technical part is almost, once you figure that out, there's still so much more that you haven't figured out. And I think that that's the main thing that I, uh, I've learned by actually being involved in this stuff and actually doing this. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to say, you know, actually walking up and down the Atlantic City boardwalk in and out of casinos trying to find, you know, opportunities for advantage play. Um, you know, the math is, is all the math of those games in, in a casino is all pretty much figured out. Um, but, the pe- you know, the people who are the, are the very best at doing the, at figuring out those problems would have no idea how to make money in a casino. So there's this whole other real world aspect to it that I think is extremely important and doesn't really get conveyed in the classroom as much as it should. And I try my best to do that when I teach. Is it fair to say that we are generally not very good at understanding even the technical components? We can put aside the the more difficult uncertainty aspects and, and unknowns out there. But even on the even just generally talking about probability and and just the average gambler or the average person on the street it's seemingly that we are still not very good at, at finding the answers to things that are generally solvable in a in a in a way that'll help you with gambling for example and it's one thing that always strikes me as an immediate disadvantage you obviously got to beat the, the the minus 110 or the vig or the juice or whatever but i think part of it is is understanding ourselves and and I do get the sense that we're not very good at that. Is that a is that a misunderstanding on my part, or is that generally how you've seen things as you've done things over the years? Well, I, I mean, I guess it, it, it kind of depends. I would say, you know, I can't speak for anyone else. I mean, I can think about how I, you know, how I came along, and I'm, I'm always learning new things all the time. And actually, in, in some sense, related to your question, is that it's 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 almost like well, now the the more I've learned the more I realize how little I know. And I think that that's common of anyone who kind of uh, spends enough time doing something as you realize kind of how, how naive you used to be and you kind of assume that there's so much more to learn moving forward. Uh, with respect to um, kind of the, some of the things that people do in gambling, I would say that, uh, you know, understanding probabilities or understanding predictions, some of these technical aspects, I mean, that's probably not something that the average better is very well versed in it's not i'd say you know it's in some ways it's not uh once you know it you know it and it's not very difficult but if you don't know it it, it can really it's it's kind of really confusing at first and that's you know that's why statistics is probably one of the least favorite subjects of most most uh, students in school except for the students who really like it because they just get it and so there are there are kind of two parts two sides to that story but um I would say that, it, you know, with respect to gambling related to what I said earlier, there's so many other aspects to it 
that um, the average better doesn't necessarily understand, for example, the difference between, you know, forecasting or probabilities versus just predicting something, for example. So in a pro when, I'm, when I'm worried about probabilities, I'm thinking, well, what is the long-term frequency uh, with which something's going to happen? And, you know, I very, you know, that's, that's kind of the more relevant thing for a long-term better, right? I might bet on some, I might bet on a, uh, a team that I actually think is going to lose, but according to my uh, probability assessment, it's, it's the right bet. You know, it's a good bet. I got a good price. Whereas prediction is just concerned with predicting what's going to happen. So if something has a 90% chance of happening, I would predict that that's going to happen. Uh, it, it has very little to do with betting, but you know, if you think about how does the average better, the average better probably isn't concerned with this distinction so much, but it has something to do with what is your long, what is your mentality? Is it a, do you, is it a short-term mentality or a long-term mentality? Uh, for example, you know, if you're a prof professional betters, of course, are in it for the long term, and they're concerned with, you know, the probabilities. They don't care necessarily about predicting the next. Uh, the next, the outcome of the next game, they want to get the right price. Whereas the average better, the recreational better, especially might be thinking about, you know, well, they just want to win tonight's game or they want to get even for the week or they got really unlucky in last night's game because something happened in the ninth inning. Um, and so the, the, you know, the, the thought process kind of gets you, gets wrapped up in the emotional side of risk. Uh, it's what, pe it's what drives people to bet in the first place, of course, but, it's also the source of a lot of these pitfalls that you just talked about. I was going to ask later on about open and closed systems, but I might jump in now just given what you're talking about. It's it's obviously, you know, whether you're playing, you know, blackjack or roulette inside of a casino versus trying to understand a sporting event or a horse race that has a, a myriad of possibilities in terms of all the factors that can impact what's going on and certainly explored some of that with previous guests. But I'm more interested in your thoughts on when thinking about open system or, or closed system gambling games, how that should impact what you're trying to do when you're when you're approaching the specific problem, whatever game it is, uh, and certainly from a betting point of view, it can take many shapes and forms and sizes. What what are the things you would be thinking about when whether it's a, an open system or a closed system approaching those types of gambling games? Just given the the differences between the both. Yeah, so this is, a, this is an interesting question. It's actually something I've thought a bit about. Uh, first of all, I'm just trying to understand this distinction. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain it in a second. But, you know, the, the short answer to your question is that I actually don't think that there should be such a hard distinction between open versus closed system. I think that everything, especially anything that in which there's a potential opportunity for, for advantage play or for profit, is going to need to have some components of both open and closed system. Uh, and I, I can explain what I mean by that. But, you know, I think the usual way to describe this uh, is that a closed system is, is where the true model is known and an open system is where the true model isn't known. So a typical example of a closed system, as you mentioned, would be uh, in a casino game, roulette, craps, blackjack, for example. Or a typical example of an open system would be sports betting. Or, you, or a horse race, like you said. Um, but I guess I might ask, well, where does poker lie in this spectrum? Um, you know, the, are, we, are we modeling the cards, which would certainly, you know, the, the, the randomness of the shuffling of the deck and how it's distributed to the players would be, the, would be a closed element. And this, but the psychological decisions of the players, uh, that's certainly an open 
an element of an open system. So there's certainly elements of both open and closed in this case. Um, and, you know, of course, there's there's technical differences between poker, casino games and sports betting. But from the perspective of betting, um, like I said, I like to think that that everything kind of has elements of both if you dig deep enough. So I can almost guarantee you that the cards in the poker deck aren't perfectly randomly shuffled and independently of the previous hand of play. Or, I, you know, I can guarantee that the numbers on the roulette wheel aren't perfectly balanced to come up with the same frequency, uh, it, you know, as, as they're supposed to. Or that the lines that at any given sports, sports book aren't perfectly priced all the time on every possible bet. Um, so there is an open part to these systems, um, and it's that open part of these systems that presents the that presents the opportunity to gain an advantage. But then the question comes: Can I capitalize on these on these opportunities? You know, are the errors big enough to capitalize on? But you know, more than that, uh, can I capitalize on them in some reliable and systematic way? And it's that systematic component that is the that is the element of the closed system, I think, that that comes into play here. Um, so, you know, in order to gain an advantage, even in sports, there has to be something systematic going on that allows me to gain that advantage over and over again, and not just on a single bet, uh, right? So, if if you think about it, I, I think that the best way that I can, a good example that that I think about is at a poker table. Um, you have the drunk guy at the poker table who is doing crazy things and he's doing crazy things that you can't even explain. You don't understand what he's doing. Um, but you know that what he's doing is suboptimal. But then the question is, well, but what allows you to take advantage of that? Because if you were going to try to actually predict what he was going to do next, you'd have no chance of doing it. But what you know is that there's this systematic component to the game, which is that the cards get shuffled and everybody kind of gets you know, that there's some randomness and there's some distribution over the hands and you know what a good hand is and what a bad hand is. And so you can kind of, you know, strategically take advantage of this behavior because you know that when you get a good hand and he's been doing these crazy things the whole time, uh, you know, chances are you have a better hand than him, right? Uh, and, and for example, in a sports betting, in sports betting, um, an example would be, um, an example would be if the book, if a bookmaker is copying lines from another book, uh, and you know that they're copying lines from another book, and this of course happens all the time, then that's that's a, that's a systematic behavior that you can take advantage of. And of course, one way to, there's there's ways that people take advantage of this. I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on this, and I'm also not going to say uh, in case you know some people don't want that out there. Um, but that's a systematic component to an otherwise open system. And so if you know that somebody is doing the same behavior over and over and over again, uh, you can take advantage of it. And that, that's, that's, a close, that's an element that I think resembles the behavior of a closed system. Interesting. So we shouldn't be too quick to distinguish between a plus EV bet at a blackjack table after a certain count has been achieved and a plus EV bet in the Super Bowl, because there are certain things that are additional to those two specific examples that although one or the other might be an open or closed system, uh, it, it's not as simple and as easy to just lump them into those buckets so quickly. Well, I think that what distinguishes those two is the fact that, um, 
okay, if you, you, so I, I think that, the, so the, what, what kind of got, so let me, let me take a second here. You know, what really got me thinking about this uh, at first was that, you know, instit- as a statistician, um, I heard the word, the description of this as, you know, open system is where the true model isn't known. Closed system is where the true model is known. And I, I kind of uh, thought about that because in statistics, you don't ever want to think that you actually know the true model. Right, a model is a hypothesis for how things behave, not actually, not necessarily a description of how they actually do behave. And so, in this context, um, you know, it's still accurate to say, you know, it would be accurate to say that most casinos games are closed and that sports bets are open because, uh, in the sense that there is a model, there is a kind of a well-defined model for how the roulette wheel is supposed to behave, how the frequencies of the numbers are supposed to come out. We have that hypothesis, you know, think about that as a hypothesis. That's how the wheel was designed to function. But then there's the actual functioning of the wheel. And so there's the model and there's the physical implementation of the model. And there could be a discrepancy between those things. Uh, as opposed to sports betting where, of course, the, the, the baseball game isn't played, isn't modeled after any kind of mathematics. Okay. But... Um, that's not necessarily what we're trying to beat. We're trying to beat this sports book who is pricing the outcomes. And so even though we, we might not have a model for how people are, you know, how, how, for exactly predicting the outcome of a, what happens during the course of a game, we could have a model for our hypothesis for how a sports book is pricing certain things. Um, and this isn't necessarily what people do, of course, but, it's, it's having that hypothesis that allows us to actually test it against the data, right? So before we can test anything, we actually have to have a model. We have to have something to test it against. Um, and so that, that's really the main difference. So in the Super Bowl example, um, the difference there would be that when you, play, when you think you have a, a plus EV, what, what, what do you have plus EV on? Well, it's based on the model that you came up with. But that model is not that. That's a model that you uh, built through data analysis and things like that, as opposed to the model for the optimal strategy in blackjack, is based on this hypothesized model after which you know upon which the game has been designed. So there's a sense in which the the model for blackjack you probably have more confidence in the accuracy of that model. And so you can be more confident in your uh, assessment of, its ex- of the expected value of that bet. And so the confidence that you have in that expected value, which, you know, quite possibly would um, have an impact on, you know, how you choose, whether you choose to bet, how much you choose to bet uh, in both of those two situations. Um, and so it, it, it's really, that's really a matter of model uncertainty. Which does have, which does have, what it, which is related to this open and closed debate. But um, I would say, you know, the, the situations that I refer to, you know, in casinos where they might be more more of an open system than you think would be situations in which obviously there's dealer mistakes or situations in which the information that you're supposed to have that you have is more or less than the information that you're than you're supposed to have, and that would be. Uh, a situation in which the odds actually have changed, and, and in some sense the model, uh, or the, the correct odds have changed. So in some sense the, the modeling has changed as a result of this physical implementation 
this mistake in the implementation. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so how how far then can you take this? For example, you know, if you go to an extreme, if a casino goes broke and they can't pay you, then that's obviously a problem. And I'm not saying that should be implemented in, into anyone's model, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. And I guess there's there's other smaller examples, let's say, with, you know, your bet can be voided by the sports book and you might be thinking that it's a it's a 99.5% chance of getting paid out. But, you know, whether or not that's correct is, is different because bets get voided quite often. There's stuff going on at the moment and there's more recent examples of, of these situations. And then, you know, the other obvious example is, is Phil Ivey and what happened to to him at the uh, playing Baccarat and there's a million others, I'm sure. But so when, when you think about this, how far should it extend and how far, obviously there's the, the modeling aspects that you described just then, but to what point can we drag out the, uh, the boundary of uh, thinking about these different items? Yeah, well actually, yeah. So this is a great uh, question to, to clarify that point. And this is something that I've, I've actually it's one of the most interesting aspects that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is this, which are the, the hidden risks that uh, come up in, in any kind of, well, in any kind of decision problem, not just in gambling or in formal risk taking, really any, any problem, any decision you make there, there's probably hidden things that we don't know about. They're the, these are the unknown unknowns. Um, and, you know, at, it's the kind of thing that I've noticed more and more and I've, you know, I've, I'm inclined to fixate on more and more as I, as I learn more, because, uh, as I said earlier, these are things that you don't realize that, you know, that I would never have thought of before because I was too naive, you know, back when I was back in early 2000, you know, I started playing online poker around 2000. Uh, there were maybe only a few sites or at least a few active sites at that time. Uh, you know, it started out by I, was, I sent fifty dollars Western Union, you know, to somebody named, you know, whatever in in Tijuana, Mexico, and he wasn't the guy who I was sending the money to. I was trying to send it to Party Poker, but they told me to send it to this guy in Mexico. And so I thought, well, that's a little bit strange, but it's you know, at the end of the day, it's only fifty dollars, so I'll do it. Now I did it, and the money showed up. Uh, and so, you know, over a period of time, I became comfortable with this process. And ultimately, you know, you win a bit, you have a pretty good amount of money on there. And I'm not the only one. And uh, I thought, well, what's the big, you know, I, I left it there. I didn't feel the need to withdraw. And, you know, of course, there's there's all kinds of risks. My account could get hacked. Uh, the site could steal the money from me. The government could take the money. And I didn't think any of those things were actually going to happen. Now, I actually got my money out before all of this all of this went down. But as, as you know, um, that's actually exactly what was happening was that this, the site, if, or at least full tilt, in the case of full tilt poker, this, they were essentially stealing the money or running a, running a Ponzi type of scheme. Now, those people and I know people who had the money in there, but I guess the point is I didn't I wasn't even kind of conscious of that, which is kind of stupid when you think about it. Um, so the, the Phil Ivey example is actually a really good example because if, if you look at this case, you know, they came up with a ingenious strategy, uh, that where they, you know, they, they convinced the casino to, to change the game in such a way that the odds were in their favor. And so you can do the math. And if you do the math and you come up with the optimal strategy, they had somewhere between a six and a 7% advantage, um, but in practice, what, did they actually have an advantage? Did they actually have an edge? Uh, you know, in, in, in the Crockford's case, 
the the expected value, you know, on paper, you know, the math problem says that they had a seven, six, six to seven percent advantage, but the the expected values on well, clearly the outcome was that you know you could argue that the expected value was actually negative because of the hidden risk that they wouldn't get paid, and, and that's exactly what happened. Um, so they were effectively getting free rolled on very large game, very large wins. I mean, had they won relatively small amount, uh, maybe they would have gotten paid. Obviously, if they had lost a large amount, it's not like they were going to get refunded that money. Um, so that, that's a situation that, you know, even this, a major casino, you would think, well, they have the money. I'm not cheating. And, you know, even after the court case, they haven't been accused of cheating. They were never found cheating. But they still didn't have they still didn't get paid. Um, and, you know, if you think about this too much, you can you, you drive yourself crazy and you end up overthinking it and you'll never <laughs> risk. You'll, you'll never put, put any money down on anything. But, yeah. you know, the point is that there are you know, there are these things to think about. Um, and, you know, it is worth at least keeping it in the back of your mind and trying to I would say, you know, you, I, I, of course, I, I wouldn't say that I, I think that they probably did the right thing in taking a shot at it. But um when you keep this in the back of your mind, you might say, well, what are some ways that I can, what are some things I can do to try to mitigate the possibility? Yeah. Let me give you a real life example for that. Like I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts. If I was betting NBA back in, I think it was 2007 off the top of my head from memory when the, the Tim Donahue stuff was happening and there was, you know, let's just say match fixing as a general term going on with respect to NBA games that he was refereeing. If I came to you and said in the middle of that process, look, I'm I'm seeing massive value on let's say totals, um, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight points of value. The line's moving against me, but I can't like I just don't know what's going on. Is that a scenario where it's really extreme and you would just say, look, just get out of there. Don't worry about why or how. Just just exit that situation completely, especially if you've got other options to put your money to work. Or is that like how would you think about? That's obviously an extreme example, but. This is on this topic of there are hidden and unknown risks that are out there that may or may not be impacting what's going on. Yeah, so I, I think that's a, that's a that's a great example. The, um, I, I mean, I, I think that you know, I guess it, it, it partly kind of gets to the conversation of whether. I guess I saw something somebody mentioned the other day on Twitter, which was that, you know. It was something to the effect that any time, you know, whenever you, you know, is there ever a situation in which calculating expected value isn't what you isn't sufficient for deciding whether or not to place a bet? And um, I didn't think that was. Uh, I think I can think of I can think of a lot of a lot of situations, but the um, you know it does get to this idea that okay, in this situation you've calculated your um, expected value to be positive, and. Uh, but you're, you're, you you kind of have this kind of gut instinct that there's something weird going on about it, right? And so the first question, well, you might ask, well, is calculating in what sense is calculating expected value enough? And um, I would say, well, there's a lot of situations in which you know, well, calculating expected value is more than enough. You don't even need to bother calculating it. Uh, all you need to know is, and in most cases, you actually can't calculate it because you don't actually know the probabilities or have a model, but but the 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 odds you're being offered are kind of so outlandish that uh, all you need you know all you need to know is it plus EV is it minus EV, and also an important thing is 
in 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 the, the in those situations, the bet size has to be pretty small relative to your overall bankroll. If you're only risking a small amount and you're pretty sure that it's a good bet, then that's probably you can probably just go ahead with it, right? I mean, if you were to, uh, I guess a, you know, example of this kind of the same example you just, related to the example you just gave, which would be, you know, what if right now you offered me two to one on the outcome of a, of a coin toss and you wanted to bet a dollar on it. Uh, well, you know, I'll probably, I'll probably just take that bet without even thinking too much about it because, well, the coins I know, two to one's a good price and it's only a dollar. So if you're, if you're ripping me off, then okay. Uh, but if you wanted to bet a hundred dollars on it, well, now I'd have to think about it a little bit. I'd have to at least make sure that there was a head and a tail on it. Um, but beyond that, I'd probably still go ahead with it. It's not, it's not going to, it's not going to be the end of the world, but you know, go up to a thousand, $10,000. Now you start to wonder, well, why, what's going on? You know, why are you offering me this? Uh, it looks too good to be true. Right. And so I think that the, the first step, um, I guess the first step, you know, when I try, when I've tried to get into new things, uh, new games or new opportunities, um, the first objective is to is to not lose. Um, so the first the first object the first kind of benchmark for me is, am I have I gotten good enough to where I can do this without losing? And in order to do that, um, you know, I think it, it's important to try as best I can to be able to identify not only situations in which I'm you know the situations in which I'm losing, but also try to explain why I'm losing. Right. Um, I'm losing because, you know, I'm my model doesn't account for this properly and I just don't know how to account for it. Uh, but, you know, I have to I have to kind of have the why, because then I can explain, well, it's not that I'm just getting unlucky. It's that I don't I'm doing something wrong. Um, and so by 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 identifying that, then I can say, OK, when I recognize the situations, I just avoid them. I don't bet. And then the key to winning then is to, well, well, one key to winning or one thing that helps with it is once you, once you don't lose, then you can try to win. Uh, and then when I'm winning, I want to know not only that I'm winning, but I want to know why I'm winning. Well, the reason I'm winning at blackjack is because I have a, I have this card counting system. And if you do the math, it explains why I'm winning. Or the reason why Phil Ivey was winning at the baccarat table was, that he had this, this this strategy and he ran the numbers and he expected to win and this is consistent with that. But you know that would help and I think that would help in this Dunnegy situation because you might say, well, here's my model is giving a price of this, and you know here's why that this is the price and here's why I know that I'm right about this. Um, although this would actually in some sense be a counterexample of that because there's something like you're saying this is a hidden risk or an unknown unknown that your model is going to say, well, look, this is all, this all makes sense. And the market's not pricing this right. But, you know, there would be some, there would have to be something else to clue you in on it, which is the fact that, well, I've been, I've been running this model for so long, it's been profitable, but, uh, I've never seen edges this big, you know, and that, that would be something that would probably, um, clue me, you know, that, that you probably have to, that would clue yourself into that, right? The idea that, you know, when, when the market tries to tell you something, you know, there's probably something that you're not, not accounting for.
Well, in, in that example, you know, the technical side of things and your model and, and building that out, let's just say you, you like the over and then you, you flip over to your intuition and you got feeling about it and you think that you're seeing the NBA change and there's a lot more three-point shooting and so on and so forth and gut feeling wise you like it as well you don't feel like there's much off let's say generally with your approach uh, and then trying to think about these hidden risks or other things that might impact it you know some of these unknowns that are out there that um, you you seem like are worth considering let's say uh, it's it must be a very challenging and difficult thing in, in the real world to to try and go against um, a lot of those things because they're you know what they're literally unknown um, but it sounds like you're talking about focus on the payoffs a little bit and we've all read and, and understand you know where that comes from and, and how that can generally be implemented is that something that will help in this scenario well i mean i, I should say i mean i don't think that you're going to avoid this situation right i don't think you're going to just say oh you know just not bet this right I mean, i think that you're definitely gonna gonna probably in this case end up losing a bit until you figure out what's going on um, but, you know, at, at the same time, if, you know, maybe, maybe it's a situation where you would cut your bet sizes down, or at least maybe you don't cut them down. Immediately. Maybe, maybe you actually do kind of go for it at first because you think it's one game, right? The first, you know, when, if, when it, the first time it happens, it's just one, it's a one off and you don't know if it's ever going to cut ever, if it's ever going to happen again, but then you start to see, well, it's happening every night. And so either there's a systematic error in these lines, which starts to become less and less likely uh, as it happens more and more. But if it is a systematic error and if it's going to persist for a long enough time, then you don't have to kind of bet, bet, the, bet the house on it every time. Um, but I think this is a situation where at first you're not even going to notice anything. You're going to probably place the bet and you're going to end up losing and uh, I, I guess it's just a lesson to kind of always to, to realize, you know, the thing I said earlier that, of course, there's no such thing as a true model in, in anything, I would say. But there's definitely no such thing as a true model in uh, in, in these so-called open systems. And so there's always the possibility, like you said, that the game is changing um, and that your model has kind of failed to account for those changes. And so whether it's a referee cheating or just that the style of play changes as it does, you know, pretty consistently over time, styles of play change on, on a, on a league wide level. So to just realize that, of course, the mo any model I have is, is always going to have to get refined and updated and to constantly be going through that refinement process. Of course, that kind of opens up a whole other can of worms because you don't want to overly tune your model um so I, I would say this is more you know this of course is more art than science um in in kind of knowing kind of having the common sense of knowing well you know this this will work for a period of time but i have to constantly be updating it but i at the same time i can't be updating it to the point where i'm overfitting based on very short-term fluctuations so this topic seems like an argument in favor of using intuition and using the gut feeling because you know in terms of a very dumb question to you you know how common are these unknowns i guess is the question i would ask and obviously that's a very silly thing to or a silly way to put it but if it can wipe you out it obviously matters if you're pressing you know that advantage in the basketball example we just talked about then yeah it's it can wipe you out or at least can eliminate a lot of gains um 
But I think the the reason I ask it in this way is that the average or the general gambler uh, or even a very vast majority probably don't think too much about the hidden risks or or think about some of these unknowns that might impact them. And if I was forced to make an argument that maybe it's okay to just have your model calculate, you know, what you think the number is, bet plus EV situations, follow Cali and do a lot of the technical stuff correctly, get the best price and just hope some of these unknowns and, and hidden risks don't end up impacting you. It's probably not a very holistic way to, to approach it, but I think the only thing I can glean from thinking about it for you know the, the extent of this podcast is you got to rely sometimes on your intuition more than uh, more than some of the textbooks probably tell you when it comes to certainly what's in theory closed systems, but I also think it applies across gambling. Well, yeah, I think that you know here, here's a very non-technical point on that, which is if it can wipe you out, then. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be an unknown unknown for you to kind of take measures to fix that situation. You know, it can be a known known. You, you don't walk up to the, uh, you know, imagine that uh, you can imagine a situation in which you, you came across some extremely positive expected value bet, like the two to one coin toss that I, I, I said that you were offering me. And you're 100 percent sure that this is a fair coin. Uh you know it. It's no more. None of this thing I said about the model is, is actually unknown. You know, it's it's a hundred percent. You you know it with certainty. Um, you have this huge edge. You're not going to go and bet your entire bankroll on it, um, right? So, you, even though you know it's a positive expected value bet, so you know anything that can wipe you out is a problem, obviously. So the the real you know the first step, the real key to being successful, obviously. Uh, in gambling is to build a bankroll. Uh, and one of the reasons, one of the benefits to building a bankroll is that it would then allow, it then allows you to take bets it, to, to pretty much make any bet that's positive expected value without, without it impacting your bankroll in any kind of noticeable way, because your, your bankroll is so big that the house, you know, the, the max bet that you're, that you're offered is, is, you know, negligible, you know, compared to, the size of your bankroll, so any kind of plus EV would be okay. Um, the trick is, you know, how do you how do you build the bankroll, right? Um, so avoiding ruin is the first is the first step to to building a bankroll. So I want to shift gears a little bit now and and talk about percentages and numbers versus curves. You've written about this in some other contexts as well, but I'm interested if there is any intersection or even overlap with gambling examples. And I would say, you know, pretty much always we think about things, certainly from a percentage point of view, as a percentage chance of happening, which certainly can be useful, I would imagine, in, in just day-to-day life. Um, you know, with the election coming up, if it's 55-45 in favor of Biden versus Trump, people can, you know, pick that up pretty quickly and understand it. But more and more, and as I talk to people like yourself and, and other smart people out there, that they say that curves are the best way and, and you know, distributions and these types of things... Tell me a little bit about how just, you know, an average or semi-professional or, or whatever it is, gambler, uh, can use this approach, uh, if at all, and, and how useful it can be when thinking about things from a, a number and a percentage versus curves. Yeah, so I, I think this is, a, this is a good thing to talk about. Uh, I, I listened, so I listened to a couple of your other shows where you talked about the curve. So by that, I assume you're referring to the... Um, yeah, you know, the, the the Bayesian way of, of thinking or Correct. Bayesian yep. way of modeling, where you you give a distribution to the parameter, um, and so I guess I, I'm gonna I, 
that that's a fine way to do things, and there's nothing wrong with it. But I, I, I guess I, I, I probably have a bit of a different opinion or uh, approach to this, um, and I think it's actually maybe good news for, for your listeners in the sense that, um, so first of all, to 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 give some some background for those who who haven't heard it or aren't you know familiar with it, uh, there's generally two different ways of two main kind of. Uh, thought process or schools of thought in in statistical inference, which is called the Bayesian and the frequentist uh, way of doing inference. And so, in all of this refers to how you understand. You know, in, in, in essence, what this is referring to is how do you treat the, the parameters in your model. So, uh, without trying to get too technical, you want to fit a model to uh, bet baseball. Um, and there's there's these parameters that are in the model. There are coefficients in a in in some regression or or something like that. And you know, under the frequentist way of thinking, those so in either case, you need to estimate those parameters. You need to figure out what they are. You don't know what they are, and that's what you use the data for. Um, in the frequentist way of thinking, it's it's assumed that these parameters are fixed. They're fixed numbers, but you just don't know them. They're fixed and unknown. Whereas in the Bayesian way of thinking, they treat them, they, 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 it's also unknown, but you put a distribution over the possibility. So, you know, I don't know whether the parameter is, it could be anywhere between minus one and one, say, or anywhere from minus 10 and 10, but I'm pretty sure it's close to zero. So I give more weight to kind of the, the area around zero. And I kind of model that my uncertainty about that parameter by this distribution. So that's called a prior distribution. Okay, so that's just the definitions. Um, but honestly, I don't think it makes a huge difference which of these approaches you use. Um, in my experience, so in my experience, both will actually give pretty much the same answers or similar answers if you express them and if you uh, perform the inference in a, in a consistent fashion. Uh, there might be benefits to using one over the other in a given situation, but um, I really think the main, the most important thing with respect to this divide, is that no matter what approach you're going to use, and I've used, I've used both depending on the situation. But if you only use one of the approaches, that's also fine. The key is that no matter what you're going to do, you need to understand what you're actually doing, understand the right way of thinking in that framework, and understand the right way to interpret what comes out of that framework. Um, but to your actual question, which was about percentages versus these curves or distributions is that, um, and the reason I went into the, the, that introduction is that the, the way that you're asking the question is actually, I mean, this is kind of apples and apples and oranges comparison, um, which is, uh, which is that let, you know, let's say you have a model for how polling results correlate to election outcomes, like you said with Biden and Trump, and in that model there is some parameter theta. Okay. Um, so as the value of theta changes, so does the probability that your model will predict of Biden winning, according to the model, right? Now, okay, first of all, you're estimating theta from the data. No matter whether you're a Bayesian or a frequentist, you're always using the data to estimate theta. So since it's, since it's being estimated from, da from data, there's randomness in your estimate because your estimate is affected by the randomness in the data. And so no matter whether you're a frequentist or Bayesian, your, your estimate has a distribution. 
So believe it or not, there's actually a curve in either case. And in the Bayesian case, this is the posterior distribution. So this is what, you know, the, the, the people who kind of support the Bayesian, you know, who, who kind of talk about Bayesian, you know, one nice thing about it is that it's very kind of clear how you should go from one step to the other. That is true. Uh, because you start with a prior distribution on the parameter, which is your prior belief or prior uncertainty. Then you put it through some calcula calculations and you get out a posterior distribution. So you put in these curve, a curve, you, you get out a curve, as you say. Now, in the frequentist case, you don't actually start with this curve. You say, well, it could be any one of these values, but I don't know which one it is, and I'm not putting any kind of quantification on it. But you do get a distribution out, and it's called the sampling distribution. And, that's the, and where that distribution comes from has to do with the randomness in the data. So even though you haven't assumed any distribution on the parameter, there's still randomness in the data that is leading to uncertainty in your estimator. Okay, so now, let, now okay, fine. That talks about the parameter that you're interested in, but you don't actually, the parameter isn't the main thing you're interested in. The probability of winning of Biden winning is what you're, what you're interested in because the probability is what you use to price the, the bet. So at the end of the day, you get the distribution on the parameter and there's just a calculation. It's a probability calculation, whether you're in the frequentist or the Bayesian domain, for how you get the probability that Biden wins over that. Basically, it's a weighted average over all of the possible parameter values uh, of the probability that the model spits out. Okay, so that's going to give you a percentage. So you get a percentage in both cases for the event happening, the probability of the event happening, and you get a distribution for the uncertainty about the parameter in both cases. So there's actually not uh, a major difference uh, in how you think about it in, in either case, right? And I think that for the sake of betting, at the, in the end, in order whether something is a good bet or a bad bet, if you have a binary outcome like Biden win or lose is going to come down to whether the odds you're being offered are good relative to the probabilities that your model gives, assuming you have a good model. Um, now, before, you know, before I finish, what, you know, so one last thing that I would say about this is that I think that what uh, proponents of Bayesian, of the Bayesian approach would say is that you can take this one level further, which is to say, okay, I have one model that has a parameter, theta, and that model gives me 57% on Biden. Uh, maybe that's the, so maybe that's the 538 model, okay, for example. They have a model and it gives a probability. I don't know what it is right now, but let's say it's 57%. It's probably higher, actually, that they give. I think it is, yeah. Uh, so they give 75% to Biden. And now there's another model out there, which, you know, is... Uh, New York Times, they have a model, and they say that it's 99% that Biden wins. So now, those are two different models. Now, they happen to be two different groups of people who created them, but let's say I'm, it's one person, it's me, and I've created two different models for the same outcome, and I get these two different probabilities because I'm not sure which model is right. So now I have a 75% and a 99%, and I'm, I'm trying to think, well, what do I do? Uh, because I'm being offered some, a price that is, say, four to one. I'm being offered four to one on Trump. So under the one model, four to one's good because Trump uh, should have a 25% chance. 
in the other one, it's terrible because he only has a 1% chance. So should I bet it or not? Well, uh, this is, this is actually something that's not very well settled. Uh, in the Bayesian setting, you can put an extra distribution on the two models. So you can say, well, I have the two models and I have, say I'm 80% confident, more, I'm, I'm more confident in the 75% model than the other one. So I can put probability, I can put 80% weight on that and 20% on the other. And that's going to then produce me a, a way to kind of get get at this probability. But in, in I don't necessarily think that's the best way to go. I think that this is a, this is an this is an illustration of uncertainty that kind of lies outside of the modeling framework in the sense that there is there's I have uncertainty in which model I'm supposed to be using. I I can't kind of just I, I'm actually I don't think it's a good idea to just say. Uh, okay, I'll just average over the two possibilities, uh, especially when you're risking money on these types of things. Um, it, 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 when you when you can get yourself into trouble that way, because what you end up doing is, um, especially you, you get this adverse selection issue, which is that you know you can kind of go through the thought experiment. Suppose that I have two these two candidate models. And um, one of them says 75%, the other says 99%. And the market's going to offer me a certain price of, you know, four to one on Trump. And according to one model, it's good. According to one model, it's a good bet. According to the other one, it's a bad bet. Um, okay. Now, should I bet it or shouldn't I bet it? And if I just average over these models in some way, then... Maybe I average over them, and then I get a I get a probability in the end of, of that it's ten uh, percent for Trump. So I'd say, okay, no, I shouldn't bet it. I should bet on Biden instead. Uh, or maybe I actually do it, and I get seventy five percent back, and then I say, okay, then I should bet on Trump. But now, now the issue is that well, the, it's kind of the situation that well, if I'm doing this averaging, the situations in which my model tells me I should I have a plus EV bet are likely the situations that the market is telling me it is kind of telling me otherwise and I'm kind of ignoring it, you know, so it would kind of be like in a horse race where you think a horse is a, a great horse or you think the price on a horse should be say four, four to one or three to one. And it's going off at 25 to one. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming, you know, you, you should probably assume it's not a three to one horse anymore. So you said it's critical within the right framework or, or picking the right framework, understanding the right framework. Um, that sounds obvious to me as a non-expert, but is it is it clear before you start your approach or your process which path to take or which which uh, methodology is right? Uh, and I think you said earlier as well, it's you can in oftentimes you know have roughly the same outcome depending on which approach you use. Just take us through that part of it in terms of if you're trying to do horse racing versus sports versus something else, is there a an easy path to pick, or is it is it a complicated journey that you'd need you know a few hours to go through on this specific topic? Um, well, I, I guess what I would say is that um, I, I do hear you know, I hear the more the more more and more uh, over the past several years the, the Bayesian the Bayesian way of thinking has I've heard it more and more and it's become much more popular. And I think there's a, there's an appeal to that, uh, and, and the appealing part from my perspective is that it is a very once you understand kind of some basic probability 
uh, and how, how you kind of get from one probability to the other, you know, basically conditioning, Bayes rule, then you can work your way through this process and this protocol, and it's all very kind of um, clean in the, logically, you know, it's logically co coherent in a sense. So it makes sense. So I, I guess that that's kind of an appealing part, and it, it's, in that regard, it, you know, maybe it's easier to learn because it makes some kind of intuitive sense when you once you build up the intuition. Um, on the other hand, it's it tends to be harder, and this is changing every day as computers and, and as tools get better. They tend to be harder to actually fit those models, especially as, as those models start to take into account a lot of different variables and have a lot of parameters and complicated structure. Those models can be basically impossible to fit or would require a lot of computational resources or at least a lot of technical expertise in knowing how to write efficient computer code to fit them. So there's kind of the, conceptually it's, it's nice, computationally maybe it's not so nice. Um, now how do you actually come about which of these you're going to work in? I mean, I, I think that everybody has a different uh, tr uh, path and, and so for me, I guess I, I should say, you know, for me, I was, I actually was, I went to school to learn statistics. Um, you don't necessarily need to go to school to learn statistics, but I did. And the school, you know, the school I was in, the program I was in was heavily skewed towards the uh, frequentist approach, which is the more classical or the more traditional approach. Uh, so that's how I was taught to think about things. And that's how I was introduced to things. Um, and so for a while, that was the first way that I tended to approach problems. But over time, I, you know, you pick up, pick up more tools and you start to recognize, well, you know, the old tools are, are definitely good in, in, in a lot of situations, but there's definitely other ways that are better in other situations. So I guess the, the, you know, the answer to your question is that I think that the most important thing, like I said, is since it doesn't, since at the end of the day, um, I don't actually think that there really isn't something, and of course there's going to be counterexamples to this, but pretty much any problem you can solve with one or any with one method, there should be a way to do it with another method. Um, now there, there, there might be, it might be easier to come at it from one, one way or, you know, it might be slightly better in, from, you know, in some cases, but yeah, you don't want to over, I, I think it's important not to overthink overthink it and over-optimize before you even get started, right? You don't want to say, well, I have to do this very high-dimensional machine learning, deep learning algorithm in order to bet on baseball, so I'm going to go and spend the next six months learning, learning how to do that. Well, yeah, that's probably not the best way to do it. The best way to do it, the, be the, the better thing to do would be to start to figure out how to fit a regression model first. Uh, you're going you're gonna to fit a simple model, it's not going to be a winning model, but in the process, you know, you, if, especially if you're new to this, new to this kind of thing, in the process, you're going to learn how to code a little bit. You're going to hopefully learn what what the model, you know, what the fits mean, what this, what statistics, you know, what the what the output of a statistical um, analysis actually means, how you interpret it, and you can kind of slowly build from there, um, because you know the most important thing. I would say, especially as you get into some really complicated models, which might be necessary if, if you, if, you know, when modeling these types of uh, these types of things, and especially as 
as these algorithmic approaches become more popular, they're definitely it's it's going to be necessary to compete to kind of be on the cutting edge. And when you get to that point, the most important thing is that it's it's really it's still very crucial to understand what the model output is actually saying. Does it even make sense, right? And that's where I think common sense. Yet, if you don't have common sense already, you have to work on developing it and that that goes for everything not just in you know walking down the street and knowing whether somebody's trying to trying to rip you off i mean that's important too but it it actually becomes even more important as these technical tools become more sophisticated i believe because you take the take these algorithmic approaches to to sports betting um you know you need to know kind of whether the, the fit that you got, the, the, what the model is saying actually makes sense. Well, how are you going to do that? Um, you know, so for example, let's say that I'm trying to, I'm trying to predict, um, I'm trying to fit, you know, I'm doing a baseball model and I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, you know, predict who, which team's going to win the game or I'm trying to get a model for, for which team's going to win the game. And in my model, I have some kind of, uh, I have some kind of factor for home team, home, home field advantage, but I, I somehow put in there that home field, I put home field advantage on even days, you know, the second of the month, the fourth of the month, the sixth of the month, and a home field advantage on odd days of the month. And it turns out that when I fit the model just by chance, that that turns out to be a statistically significant effect that the home team, the home home field advantage is much higher on even days of the month. Okay. Now, the question might, you know, you might ask, well, how could that ever come out to be significant? Well, probably wouldn't be, but something like this could be just by chance. If you try enough factors, something will be significant. Um, then you could ask, well, should you include it in your model when you actually go to do betting? And obviously common sense would, would tell you not only should you not include it in your model after you fit it, but why are you even putting that factor in your model in the first place? Well, okay, fine. That, that's a simple, that's, a, that's kind of a simple description of the problem. But now imagine you're using some of these more uh, modern cutting edge type of machine learning or deep learning type of algorithms. They're, they're capable of actually finding factors like this themselves and finding them and giving you the best fit based on just processing a lot of different combinations of factors. So they actually, you know, it's very possible if you process it through this very complicated algorithm that you don't really understand what it's doing, uh, that you're going to get a model. It's going to, you know, you're going to get a model and uh, it's going to have some factors in the model that aren't even as simple, are nowhere near as simple to explain as even day of the week or odd day of the week where you can intuitively say that doesn't make any sense. Uh, they're much more. They're chopping up the data in in many more ways to the point where it can't even be described what the factor means. But what it what does happen is that it's statistically significant. So you can you really can't explain necessarily or interpret the model. Uh, so in this case, the only thing you can understand is what you put into the model and what you and then you get something out of it. Uh, and so. This is why, you know, this is kind of why I, I emphasize common sense kind of in, in, in everything, not, not you know, and, and especially in the, in the technical side of things and building intuition by building up from simple examples to more complex examples.
um, not starting with the very most sophisticated or complicated thing because you won't know what you, you won't even know what you're looking at and you'll have no basis for whether it makes any sense or not. So I see discussions often about, let's just take the election. I saw something recently about, you know, the markets, whether it's predicted or other betting markets and what they have Biden and Trump versus some of those more public models. And you referenced 538 and Nate Silver as well as, you know, New York Times, for example. How useful do you think those types of 538 models can be, assuming that they're not being used to bet, which I sincerely hope they're not, but who knows? Um, and I suppose it goes to this, you know, thought of or idea of skin in the game and how how impactful that can be. And from a gambler's point of view, I guess it translates to maybe just a, a new model you've developed that's been back tested but but hasn't been deployed. It's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing to watch the world clamor over something like five thirty eight. But I think you know, at least from my intuitive point of view, it, it seems like a a challenging thing to stomach that that's going to be the be all end all. So. From your point of view, how much weight do you give to something like 538 or the, the New York Times model if it doesn't come with, with true skin in the game? Yeah, so I, I've, I've written things about this, uh, as, as you mentioned, and I think this is, this is an important part of um, you know, the real-world aspect of kind of probability and risk and gambling that is t- completely missing from the academic side of things. Um, so with respect, first of all, with respect to... Um, 538 uh how useful are their models i mean i i have used their i do look at them when i i do very little of this because there's not very much money in i mean i shouldn't say that you can you can make money in prediction markets uh but the only the only uh the only market i have access to in the united states is predicted which has 800 hour limits or 850 hour limits on each market so there's 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 only so much you can take out, and there's professionals doing that. It's not easy uh, for a part-time or semi-professional person to do. Um, but I, you know, I do get involved in those, especially during elections, and I do look to 538 and see, kind of calibrate myself of, okay, where do things stand? And I do believe that there are situations in which 538 is definitely much better, and there are situations in which it's probably much worse. I mean, for the Biden... Um, Trump thing, uh, I would, I would, I would, so I, I tend, so here, just to give you my heuristic, um, and I, I've used this successfully in the past and, I, you know, I'll probably look at it again, but, um, I don't trust 538 on pro- on any probability between say 15% and 85%, um, in the sense that if, if they give a probability of 80%, I would say that I have no idea whether that should actually be 65% or whether it should be, it, it's probably more like 65% uh, than, than anything else. But, you know, there, there's a much wider range of what it actually should be. Whereas when they give something a 99% probability, um, usually predicted is only given it like 94 or 95. But the reason is easy to explain because there's transaction costs and there's, there's long shot biases in these uh, prediction markets. Um, so I think on the extreme ends of things, 538 is probably a little bit better, but on the, on the middle, uh, you know, in the middle, it's, it's probably a bit worse. Okay. But what, what bothers me the most and what I've written about, and you talked about skin in the game and what I talk about, uh, what I call the fundamental principle of probability, which is that if you say, you know, this is kind of what makes 
prediction markets good, you know, a great thing, or and this is kind of what makes sports betting. Well, actually, I won't say that because sports sports books, like you said, they, they they put up numbers and then they cancel the bets or they don't pay them out. Well, what I was going to say is if you put up a probability, if you say that something has a certain probability, it doesn't mean anything unless you're actually backing it up and putting a bet on it. Uh, if you if you see an opportunity, according to your probability, it looks like a positive expected value bet. Yeah, you know, assuming that you're not risking ruin and all of the things, other things that we talked about. Uh, and this is something that's completely missing from the uh, the 538 stuff. And actually, it's something that's, that really kind of struck me last, uh, it was two years ago with the midterm election, I saw that Nate Silver had, uh, he, he was doing a podcast and he was asked, he was, he was kind of making fun of the prediction markets, which he does from time to time. And he was saying that they were really stupid about certain 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 um, races, and someone asked him, "Well, ha- did has you have you bet on these based on your model?" And he said, "Oh no, I haven't because it's a it's a conflict of interest um, to do that. It would be unethical to do that." And I thought that was an amazing answer because, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned, it's ridiculous. the opposite. It's the, yeah, it's, it's the complete opposite, which is that you're uh, you're ethically obligated to bet on that. Um, as somebody who is kind of putting it out there as as publicly, and you you say that this is that they're that the markets are stupid, well then you know prove that they're stupid. You know, go make some money off of them. Um, and, and so this 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 kind of reminds me of a story that went so that I that I um, about the first time I actually ever taught uh, a class, which was when I was a graduate student. I had to teach a class as part of the program. And it was an undergraduate class in statistics. And, you know, like I said, I try to bring in as many kind of, I try to bring the real life, real world aspect into it as much as I can. Although, believe it or not, it, it's it's harder. It, it, it should be easy because of how closely connected, how much how much probability gets used in gambling and how much, how important gambling has been historically to the development of probability. I mean, the, the, the initial kind of motivation for mathematical probability was gambling. So it really should be talked about a lot more, but it's kind of been swept under the, it's kind of being brushed aside, uh, trying to think, well, if we're much, you know, we're more sophisticated than that now, but at the end of the day, um, you know, that, that connection to the to real world consequences is what, which is what makes any of this stuff meaningful. So, Anyway, I, I was teaching something uh, called the St. Petersburg Paradox, which, uh, just briefly to describe it, uh, is it's just a, it's just a game where uh, the stake we're going to start out with a stake of a dollar, and I'm going to toss a coin until a tail comes up. So I'm going to toss a coin until the first tail comes up, but every time I toss a head, the amount of money I owe you doubles. So I owe you a dollar at first. And then I toss it and it comes up heads. So now I owe you $2. I toss another head. Now I owe you $4. And then $8, $16, until And then if, if a tail were to come up at that point, I would pay you $32 and we would be done. Um, so you can see that if you play this game, that if you toss enough heads in a row, or tail, uh, yeah, heads in a row, then um, you're going to, you're going to end up losing a lot of money fast. Ten heads in a row would, would be two to the power ten, which is a, it's a thousand ten, you know, which is ten uh, a thousand and twenty uh, four. 
So you can lose money pretty fast in this game. But the, the reason why this is called a paradox, this isn't a game anyone ever plays, actually, but the reason this is called a paradox is because if you calculate the expected value of this bet, of this game, it's infinite. Okay. And so then the question is, well, how much would you be willing to pay to play this game? And uh, so just quickly to relate it back to uh, we talked earlier about calculating expected values and, and kind of the first thing I hear people talk all the time, you know, plus EV, plus e, positive expected value. Um, that's kind of the, the first thing to think about. You need to have positive expected value in order to make a bet. But just because you have positive expected value doesn't mean you make it. And it, also after that, you have to determine, well, if I'm going to make a bet, how much am I going to bet, right? So in this situation, it's, well, this is a positive expected value. How much are you going to pay to play? And according to, you know, the naive view of things, you would say, well, you should pay any finite amount because it's an, it's, it has a higher expected value than that. Um, but, you know, kind of intuitively think, well, but let's say you paid a million dollars to play this game. Well, in order to break even, you would need to flip 20 heads in a row and then on the 21st, then you can double your money and you'd make a million dollars. And after that, you start to make a ton of money. But with very, very high probability, you're going to end up losing something on the order of a million dollars. So nobody in their right mind would actually pay a million dollars to play this unless they had probably trillions of dollars if you actually do the kind of the Kelly calculation. So anyway, so that, that's the game. And so I taught this paradox and I, I, I wanted to demonstrate it live and so i said let's play this you know is anybody interested we'll start with a dollar and uh how much would you be willing to to, to pay to play so somebody offered to, to pay five dollars to play and so i said okay and so we started tossing the tossing the coin and you know it ended up getting it ended up getting pretty exciting for the kids in the class not so much for me but i ended up tossing <laughs> tossing heads uh eight in a row uh Oh, I should say that before I did this, I said, I'm capping the losses. I'm capping my losses at $512, which would, would require me to toss nine heads in a row, um, which I didn't think was going to happen, obviously. Um, but in any case, I tossed eight in a row. So that's 256 minus the five that he paid to play. So I owed him $251. Okay. So the point of this story is, uh, to me, and I, I really only realized this more and more uh, as as it's kind of it's, it's happened probably more this happened more than ten years ago, um, but it becomes more and more significant to me kind of as time goes by. The point isn't that I got unlucky and tossed eight in a row. Okay, the point is that okay I lost the bet. Uh, I, I after class I went I I went to the student I paid him the money right away, um, which was a very which was a very simple thing to do. Obviously, it's the ethical thing to do, but it gets to the ethical parts of gambling. That when you make a bet, you pay pay when you lose. If you expect to win, to get paid when you win, you got to pay when you lose. Um, and you know that's kind of something that you know all the gamblers I know. You know, it's it's an interesting thing, right? I think people who know gamblers tend, to, you know, they're, they're they they the way that I think of them and, and people I know are one hundred percent the most trustworthy people that I know, but people who don't know them all think that they're cheats and they're, they're going to uh, rip you off. But that's, it's, it's completely the opposite because they understand, because when you're involved in this kind of thing, you understand the importance of 
of that trust. Right. So anyway, you know, I paid, I paid the bet, but what, what really uh, took me by surprise is that when I took, when I took the money out to pay the kid who I was paying and the rest of the class, they were in shock. They, they, you know, they, they said they didn't think I was serious. They didn't think I was actually going to pay it. Um, and this was kind of crazy to me, you know, this, this idea that, well, first of all, we, we agreed that we were, we were, we were that, that we were betting, right? Uh, and I assume they would have expected me to pay if I had lost two or three or two or four or five dollars. Um, they wouldn't be shocked by this, but I guess the fact that it was such a large amount, they expected me to try to talk my way out of it. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of that kind of gives you some indication of how people think about these things, but also kind of the, the very, uh, you know, the huge disconnect between the classroom pen and paper calculation and the classroom demonstration for pennies or for fake or for no money at all and the real world consequences. I mean, this stuff is supposed to be extremely applicable and obviously stuff like probability and statistics is getting used in finance and other kind of high stakes, high risk, you know, scenarios, insurance, things like that. So it's used in all of these real world applications. Um, but it's almost like that, that's, that's something that, you know, never gets communicated or can never really get conveyed. Um, and, and, you know, it's just kind of, it was a little bit, you know, a little bit surprising, but it, it, it kind of it, it's kind of good. It's something I keep in the back of my mind because it makes me, you know, think that well, there are people like that out there. You know, there there, there is this side of things where, you know, statistic probability is just an academic subject, and you know, the whole point of what I'm trying to say is that it's not an academic subject. You know, it's a real world subject, and it has you know kind of real world applications and and real life uh, lessons and consequences. It's such an awesome story and. I think many would say that it extends beyond, you know, the academic classrooms and into, you know, I read a lot about uh, Wall Street and some of the challenges that people people often point out there with, you know, people participating clearly in the upside and, and not being that interested in the downside, certainly through some of the things in, uh, you know, with the CDOs type stuff in more recent times, but even back further to that. And, and certainly in the gambling space, nothing frustrates people who, who know what they're doing, uh, let's say, more than, than people who don't or people that are sort of free-riding off the industry or free-riding off, uh, you know, e- executives choosing, let's just say, pundits who, who don't have any uh, real skin in the game. They have they could they could go at, you know, 48% for, for 10 years and no one would ever care. And I think that's the that's goes back to the Nate Silver uh, comment, let's say, or... Well, I, and I read one of your papers about uh, naive probabilism, and I think there's certainly some overlap there in terms of, you know, we can think about things certainly from a pundit point of view as a as a probability or as a number and as a guess. And until and unless you have the actual skin in the game, you really don't fully grasp the the real world consequences of what can and does happen, even things that are statistically unlikely. Uh, and and you know, you can put percentages on that, of course, but having the having the you know the example you just raised the 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 ability to pay someone out extends beyond the the technical side the the paper side the theory side and i think that's clearly lost on many 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 people and you know i think myself included many times i'll 
think about things in, in that way when really, you know, your example is the perfect illustration of how we ought to be thinking about things more often. Yeah. And, and actually that's, you know, it's a good, that, that relates perfectly almost to the Ivy situation, right? Which is, uh, you know, I, if, or, or even things I've been seeing about recently about sports books, um, saying that they're going to pay out the, they're, they're going to, they're going to avoid the winners, but keep the losers, uh, uh, and you know, I'll pay you if you, you know, if you lose, I'll take the, I'll take it. But if, if you win, I'm not going to pay you. Um, it's really, uh, and of course, with the with the Wall Street stuff, the bailouts and things like that, that when you take such big risk, it's almost like you're incentivized not to take small risks but to take big risks, um, because if it's so big that if, if it's so big that you collapse and you're and you're big enough to where not only are you going to collapse but everybody's going to come down with you then you know there's the, there's this there there's obviously this free rider problem you, you get all the upside with none of the downside um, and I think that that's missing from definitely you know in those examples and the thing that the thing that actually putting a bet out does that not putting a bet out you know, doesn't do in, in the case of silver, uh, silver's example, um, you know, I've heard this so many times and it, and it kind of annoys me. And I think that it would annoy anyone who's, who's ever, you know, kind of bet or gambled is, um, he, he, he's going to put say a 75% chance on Biden. And, and obviously if Biden wins, he's going to say, yeah, you know, he had the, the right, the right model or the right forecast. Um, of course, he could be wrong at, at, in that. I mean, maybe the, maybe the forecast should be 85%, maybe it should be 65%. And of course, that's the point, is that the price matters. Um, but if Trump wins at, at 25%, he's going to say that he gave him a 25% chance. So <laughs> he wasn't ruling it out. And, and it's kind of this, uh, and people kind of buy that. And I even see that, you know, people who are, well, it's not, it's not even. I mean, you know, a lot of academic, you know, well, you know, people who know the math and who are so-called experts in this, they um, they buy that as well, and it's 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 precisely because they're familiar with the because they're they're treating this like an academic subject, and they don't quite make that connection to concrete real-world things. And I mean, you know, I, I know I know experts, people who are world-renowned in I mean, they're actually world-renowned experts in you know the theory of gambling in some sense and they've never placed a bet in their entire life. Um, so I don't know how much more of a microcosm of uh, academia you can get than that. Yeah. It sounds like a nice gig actually. Um, <laughs> put my hand up for that one for sure. But for gamblers, especially uh, obviously looking at probability and how much that has helped. I think there's, there's no doubt about that, whether it's someone just simply using Kelly or whatever they're doing in their, their gambling. But Outside of, of probability, there's there's plenty of uh, well-known people and books. Uh, there's, there's areas of epistemology and other things that seemingly can find relevance. You know, we've talked about some of that now and different heuristics out there. Are there any areas that you would suggest that the gamblers look or, or maybe, you know, in the next 10, 20, 30 years as things evolve and, you know, hopefully uh, we get to continue to read your stuff and you'll be at you know, at the cutting edge of this type of thing in a different way compared to, to many of the other academics. Is there one area that stands out to you that's going to be a very interesting development point that might have some interest for gamblers out there? Well, if I, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. And if I do, I, I, um, <laughs> I'll try to be ahead of the curve so that I can 
least maintain an edge for as long as possible. But, um, you know, I, I guess we, we talked earlier um, offline a bit, uh, and you meant, you've mentioned Kahneman and you've mentioned Taleb indirectly in this conversation through Skin in the Game. Um, so if, if I could talk about something that's maybe non-gambling related and I can tie it back into yeah, uh, those for other sure. authors. Um, so, you met, so you mentioned naive probabilism. That's something that I, I wrote about uh, within the past six, I guess it was six months or so now. It was right at the beginning of the, um, the coronavirus outbreak in the, in the United States. Um, so it was late February, early March that I, that I thought about this. And, you know, at that time, there were there were basically two schools of thought for how we should respond to this thing, which was uh, it basically on the on the one side, there were a lot of the elite kind of academic economists, statisticians, doctors who were saying, you know, there's no evidence that this thing is any worse than the flu. This is complete overreaction. There's you know, we need we're we're overreacting and and we shouldn't kind of go crazy about this we should just go on with our lives um and so one of the people who did that one of the people who wrote an article in bloomberg was someone named Cass sunstein who is somewhat well known in, in well he's pretty well known in the in academic circles and even in politics um and he's he's what he's known for is this theory called nudge uh which comes from behavioral economics which is that you can basically manipulate people to behave a certain way just by framing questions a certain way uh, and basically basing government policy off of this. Anyway, that, that's that's part of the thing he's known for, but he, he's one of the people in this behavioral economics uh, field, which Kahneman is, is associated to. But what he did was he wrote in um, he wrote in Bloomberg about something that he called probability neglect, which is, so in behavioral economics, they come up with a lot of kind of catchphrases like this. And what probability neglect is, is that he was saying that we're guilty of that in the case of coronavirus because there's a very small chance that, turn, that this turns out to be a big deal, but we're overreacting. You know, we're, we're treating this thing like it, it's guaranteed to become this major outbreak, but in reality, it's really a very small chance of that happening. And so we should kind of calm down and not worry about it so much. Uh, most likely, he said, it'll be it'll be comparable to the flu. Um, so setting aside whether or not he was actually correct in that assessment that it was unlikely, because obviously we know where we're at now. And he was saying this in early March. So there was actually kind of a lot of outbreaks in other countries. Um, it doesn't even matter if it was very unlikely. It doesn't matter if it had a 0.001% chance of becoming, you know, the biggest thing we've ever we've ever experienced. Um, because he's completely ignoring the consequences if that happens, right? So this isn't just you put down a $10 bet on a very unlikely outcome, and if you lose, you lose $10. This is, if we lose, it's not just I lose, it's we all lose because of this the highly connected nature of how the disease, how disease is spread and things like that. So this is a systemic kind of major uh risk at, the, at that kind of level at a higher scale. So it's, it's very different than the types of things that we, uh, that you experience in gambling. What about uh, an uncapped St. Petersburg? Well, right. So what is, so if I, if I actually got myself involved in, in such a bet, yeah. And depending on how much money I have, well, that, that's, first of all, that's the reason why you never take St. Petersburg because <laughs> no matter who you're betting against, 
who's going to pay you out always has a finite amount of money. So your expected value isn't actually a million dollars or infinite. It's whatever it, it's capped by the, the amount of money that person has. Um, and it's capped actually at a very small number. So in the example, for example, actually going back to the one I gave, I capped it at five hundred and twelve dollars, which if you calculate the expected value, the expected value of that bet is four dollars and fifty cents. And the guy paid five dollars for it. So I actually had a plus EV. Um, so, you know, maybe I can hang my hat on that. Right. But if so, if you go to um, if I was willing to pay out a million dollars then my expected value would be, the expected value of that bet would only be $10. Um, so, yeah. So there's no such thing as an uncapped, but obviously it can be uncapped relative to my net worth and then I can say, yeah, I'll risk it all and I'll pay it all out if I lose. And I would never take, I would never do that, right? That's not a smart thing to do. What am I going to gain? $5, $10 from it. So that's kind of the equivalent here in some sense, which is that, except this is at a much higher scale, which is that it doesn't just make me go bust, you know, potentially, you know, it makes many other people go bust and potentially all of us, because uh, there's a lot, it's a high correlation, multi, and, you know, very multiplicative process. And so it's not the kind of thing that we get to uh, experience very often in, in betting, although St. Petersburg is a multiplicative example. So it's maybe as close as you can get to it. But what I talked about in that case is that actually there are different situations in which different concepts are relevant. And so what Sunstein and the behavioral economics people do is they they coin they, they talk about things like loss aversion and probability neglect. And they say that if you don't behave, you know, you're behaving in a way that's irrational, basically, because the probabilities or the expected values, you know, you're, you're, you're basically taking negative expected value uh, proposition. And so something like buying, buying life insurance or buying health insurance is a negative expected value proposition because there's a premium. And obviously the premium is what makes it negative expected value. But everybody wants to have health insurance, whether or not they have it, they would like to have it because it's actually positive expected value in some sense. It's not technically positive expected value, but it is positive uh, in terms of survival and in terms of all of those things. And if you don't survive, you can't, you're not going to realize your long-term uh, expected values anyway, right? So there is, so according, but according to them, everything is just simple expected value and probability. Um, and so they call you irrational. But what I talk about in this is, I, I, that's what I call naive probabilism, because the objective of, um, you know, fighting against coronavirus isn't to win a bet. It's not to be correct in predicting that it was just like the flu. It's to avoid disaster, right? So there's a lot of situations, and there's, there's a sliding scale of situations in which, uh, you know, the different concepts are appropriate for different situations. So when we're gambling, we use probability because we're, we, we can bound our losses, right? I, if I bet $100, the most I can lose is $100. Uh, and if I don't want to bet that much, I don't bet that much. So I, my losses are always bounded. Um, now, in, in finance, or in, in you know, maybe maybe I'm not able to completely bound my losses. Maybe I need to hedge my uh, hedge my losses. And so, when I'm whereas when I'm gambling, I just want to win the most because I can bound my downside. Uh, when I'm hedging, I, I also kind of want to think about losing the least, right? So. There, I have to think about not what's probable, but what's plausible. 
you know, is it plausible that, you know, you say that, uh, you, you said earlier about a, having a, you calculate your expected value in a Super Bowl game to be, I don't know, you, you say that a team has 55% and you're getting paid one-to-one, so you have a certain edge on that, right? According to Kelly, that's going to tell you to bet 10% of your bankroll, right? Now, according to, uh, but is it plausible that there's something wrong with your model that actually the probability is more like 52%, 51%? What is the range of plausibility that it, that that you that you know is kind of built into the uncertainty and to other factors that you're not accounting for. That's what that's what that's what motivates fractional Kelly betting, right? Is the fact that it's plausible and it's actually it's actually likely that your model is off systematically in one direction if the market's offering you a different price. So you hedge a little bit by betting fractional Kelly, and then on the other and then finally is just. You know, and, and this is what's relevant in, in this COVID case, is survival. We're just trying to avoid ruin. Uh, and there we just have to think about all the possibilities. What is a reasonable possibility? And, you know, what's kind of the mo- most extreme possibility that we can possibly um, afford to guard against? And we need to, you know, kind of go to that extreme just to survive. And so um, really, if you think about it, in, in gambling, and when we use probability, we're trying to do that to win the most. We're trying to win as much as possible. Uh, when we're hedging, we're trying to lose as little as possible. And, you know, finally, when we're using, you know, possible, when we're just thinking in terms of possibilities and survival, we're just trying to avoid ruin. We're trying to survive so that we can make the next bet. Uh, and so that's the thing that I talked about um, in naive probabilism. And so that, that that's also relating to these uh, guys Kahneman, I know a lot of people talk about his, his book on thinking fast and slow. And, you know, I, I thought a lot about that book and I've read it actually several times. And I, I actually think that there's, uh, there's more, kind of, I, I'm actually not a, not a big fan of that, that way of thinking because I think it oversimplifies a lot of these types of things. I mean, it oversimplifies these kind of uh, higher level things, these unseen risks that we talk about, a lot of the things that we mentioned here are not only not only swept under the rug, they're actually dismissed as being irrational in a lot of that theory. So, so to contrast that with um, Taleb, who, who talks a lot about, uh, bet, you know, tail risk and avoiding ruin. And so if, if you want to compare the two, you know, the expected value, the, the behavioral economics is doing a lot of first order thinking. You know, what is the probability? What is the expected value? And they're trying to base a lot of decisions or model a lot of behaviors based on that very first order approach to the problem. But even in the, in the gambling setting, as we said, that's that EV calculation is a first pass at the problem. It's not the, it's not the ultimate decision point. Uh, you have to then think about how much you're going to, whether you're going to bet, and how much you're going to bet, and that's what gets you. That's what gets us into these more. That's related to these more second order types of effects, these more systemic, or you know, issues of tail risk and uh, and potential ruin. And so Taleb is 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 a very good resource for for that. Yeah, it's really interesting because you know even if you follow Taleb on Twitter, it's an interesting journey and, and roller coaster and. You know, I often even find myself certainly by no means a multi-decade expert at gambling. Far from it, to be honest. But 
you know, you, you contrast and, and look through Taleb versus Tetlock, you know, and, and their approaches and thoughts and different things. You talked about uh, Sunstein before and, you know, and Richard Thaler and, and how they go about doing different things. Um, you know, Kahneman's one that often is, is brought up first in a lot of these different things. But is it a, is it, I mean, how does someone sift through all of this? Do you have to sift through, you know, what Thaler and Sunstein are, are talking about and try and pluck out aspects that are relevant or you know do you completely dismiss certain people if they if they are in your mind incorrect on a, on a certain approach or on a certain area because it's not necessarily that easy anymore to uh unless you've got hours and hours and hours and you you can go through every book and every paper and 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 try and sift through yourself it is sometimes a challenge to apply weight to what matters and what doesn't and you'll often find many people who uh, certainly have done a lot of the work and, and research uh, are for or against. Uh, and I think it's, I just struggle to, to know the best way to approach it sometimes because even though you, you might be correct 99 times, obviously all that matters is the one time you're not and what type of impact that's going to have. Yeah, well, I, I mean, as first of all, as you said, there's all, I mean, there's only 24 hours in a day and, you know, some things, I guess, some things aren't worth your time, but I guess the difficulty is not, is knowing what, what that is. I mean, I, I shouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that uh, Kahneman, is, the stuff that he talked about certainly isn't useless, and there's certainly good stuff in there, and you can learn a lot from it. Um, but you have to, I guess at the same time, it's not the be-all and end-all, and I think it's important to realize that, and that's true of anybody. Um, what, what got me into reading that, and I, at the same time, you know, it's also part of my job in some respects to be aware of some of these things. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend going on a bender of reading every book that, you know, these guys have written because, like, you know, because you only have so much time. Um, but the, what I really got out of reading that was what motivated me to read it was that I had uh, met Kahneman. I had heard him talk about what he was saying and uh, you know his, his ideas and these were ideas going back decades obviously and it just didn't sit right with me intuitively that this was the right way to, uh, to think about some of these things and that I didn't think it was irrational to make these decisions the way that they discussed it but at the same time the way that it's presented and the way that they talk about it it, it sounds very convincing and so I was kind of uh, uh, you know that kind of motivated me to look deeper into it and to really think through it and in thinking through it, I learned a lot, right? So it's not necessarily that I agreed with what they were saying, but I had to actually think about it before I understood why uh, why I didn't why it was wrong or why I didn't think it quite applied. Um, so that's a you know that's an exercise. It's a good exercise to have, and if you have the time and the energy for it, I, I do think that there's benefits to going through those types of uh, exercises because they do you know you. you what I found is that you, that that type of thought process it really trains your thought process to be able to apply elsewhere and to apply it much more quickly. So it kind of does train the intuition. Um, and then also, it's important not only to read and to think, but to try to apply it. To try to think, well, this is something that uh, maybe this idea would would apply or might not apply. Um, but I guess another thing is, I mean, there's also situation. There's also the fact that. There's a lot of people out there who know about this stuff, who, who've read about this and who probably try to use some of these ideas. Um, and so if they happen to be your competition uh, for whatever reason, and, you know, in poker, for example, there might be a lot of this type of psychological stuff 
that comes up, then it's good to know what the competition knows, right? So it, it almost becomes essential uh, to know it. But I think that the moral of the story, I, I guess if I could make a practical point um, and something that I've uh, I've kind of found, you know, every, every gambler I've ever talked to, and I, I can attest to this, you know, myself, uh, and, and Taleb kind of gets at this by trying to avoid ruin, but every successful gambler I've ever talked to, they, you will ask them, what is the most important thing? And I've never gotten a different answer. Uh, maybe that maybe I did. I don't remember it, but the most important thing is bankroll management. Um, everybody I've ever talked to has said that. And it really, it really does get back to this idea of avoiding the disastrous consequences. And it's just so hard to do, um, because, there's going to be a time where there's all everybody's going to go on losing streaks, and there's going to be a time where where you're it looks like it's all falling apart, and it's tempting to just try to get it all back all at once. Um, and that's something that's a psychological thing that I, I don't know how to overcome that. You know how anybody would can overcome that necessarily. It's just something that I think uh, has to be trained and has to be worked on in order to be successful there. Yeah, and to tie it back to the Donahue example, you might have the best model ever uh, that's ever existed on the NBA totals markets. It might be accurate. Uh, you might have got your bet down at the right price. You might have dealt with all the challenges that come with that. And then you sit back and watch a string of 20 games throughout that season and you lose them all. And it was because you know there was match fixing going on and you can't go back to your bookmaker and say, hey, did you see this article? This is what happened. My model's amazing. I did everything right, everything that all the books said and all my intuition told me, and, and now here we are. It's a it's a good lesson that, you know, obviously many people would count and say, well, it's, it's never going to happen to me, which you often hear. Um, but I think that's the that's the beauty of what you've described and discussed today in that, it you know, you can have everything perfectly fitting uh, what you want to do, and then there's something that comes out of nowhere and can wipe you out. Yeah, absolutely. Harry, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's uh, it's great to chat to someone of your ilk about these topics, and uh, I know we could have done many more hours, but I'll I'll leave it there for now and, and hope to have you on again sometime. But it's been a pleasure chatting about about gambling, about uh, your world of probability and statistics. Yeah, absolutely. It was a great time. Thanks for having me, and uh, look forward to you know doing it again sometime. 